You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I'll invite you to return to John 21 as we continue our study in John's Gospel. Making our way almost to the very, very end here. We're going to begin, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last time, which was verse 17. So we'll begin reading with verse 18 and read through verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you, Father. We thank you for your word, and we thank you, Father, for these uh, wonderful teaching that is contained therein. And we ask, O oh, Father, that you'd be pleased this morning to teach us, to guide us, to lead us, and bring us, O oh, Father, into the depths of the truth that you, have, uh, that you have stored here for us. So, Father, we pray that not only would we come to understand this text, But, Father, we would also, by your grace, be given the ability to align our hearts with it. So, Father, we pray, work in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we dive into things here, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. I want to show you kind of why I'm up to. It may seem a a bit odd to start in verse 18 and end in verse 23, but I want to show you just some structural things here, if you look at the end of verse 19, and I think most of our translations will end with the words, follow me. You'll notice that there at the end. You have a parenthetical phrase there, a sentence there in parentheses. And then after that, you will have a sentence to the effect that after saying this, he said to him, comma, follow me. I think most of our English translations will end with those two words, follow me. And if you look at verse 22... Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And what I want to point your attention to is the fact that what we have here is, you know, in theology we call this an inclusio, which is the Latin term for uh, bookends. Imagine books on a shelf. You have two bookends. Um, An inclusio is like a set of brackets that's containing a cohesive thought, if you will. And, of course, the overarching theme of this text is one that we looked at last week and we begin to look at last week, and that's the restoration of Peter. But within this overarching theme, within the context of this restoration, we find the theme of discipleship. And the words, follow me, bring us right to the very essence and right to the very heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. 
So that's why we're picking up here uh, with this idea of following me. And what I want to do, I'm gonna, we, we have to do some explaining here. We're going to do some explaining for a little bit. But what we want to do is we want to look at these words, follow me. And I have a, a number of things, a number of angles uh, this morning that I want to look at these words by. So uh, last week we began looking at Peter's restoration. If you look up to verse 15, there you see when they had finished breakfast, Jesus approaches Simon Peter and he comes to him with these words, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And if you heard last week's message, you'll know that I, I brought up three potential interpretations of that phrase, do you love me more than these? And they all hinge on how we define these. What does Jesus mean by these? Well, uh, he could mean uh, fishing. The disciples had been out all night on the lake fishing. And uh, after all, Peter was a fisherman. Uh, Jesus called him out of the fishing boat, if you will. So uh, Peter has probably been fishing all his life. He was probably, as, as soon as he was old enough to get into a boat, He's probably been fishing. That's been his vocation, his lifelong vocation and family business. So possibly what Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than you're fishing? It's possible. Another one uh, is Peter's been out all night with the other disciples, hasn't he? He's been out with his comrades. So Jesus could be saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than your brothers who you've been spending the night with? Fishing. In other words, do you love me more than the other disciples? Or Jesus could be asking Peter this, Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? And you'll remember that that was, this, that, that was the interpretation we landed on. How do, we, how do we choose between the three? Context, context, and context, isn't it? Because that's picking up on a thread. That's picking up on a thread that John has been developing now for quite some time. And someone said, well, Rick, I'm a little foggy on this. Would you explain that? Sure. In the upper room, and we've been looking at this. You know, there's a lot going on in that upper room uh, on that Thursday before Good Friday, isn't there? Jesus and his disciples are all together. And Jesus is, you know, it's a night of intimacy for sure, but Jesus is also throwing some things at them. You know, so listen, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me, and I'm soon going to be departing from you. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. But imagine this one. All of you will fall tonight because of me. Imagine hearing that. Of course, what does Peter say? Matthew records for us. Peter says, listen, all these other guys might fall, but I am not going to fall. You know, these other guys, you know, sometimes we have this joking thing. We say, hey, that guy over there, you better watch him. How many times have you heard that, or maybe sometimes you've, you know, jestingly said that? Uh, well, Peter's not kidding. And I think, uh, if we think about what Peter is saying right there, I mean, there's a lot of things going on. You know, there's pride going on. There's self-sufficiency going on. There's lots of stuff going on there. But one of the things that's going on there for sure is that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a proudly veiled boast that, suggests that Peter loves Jesus more than the others do. Now, a few weeks have gone by, probably on the minimum, maybe two, two and a half weeks have gone by, and Jesus is approaching uh, Peter, and Jesus had told Peter, listen, 
You know, before the rooster crows, you're going to have denied me three times. Peter does that. He falls. And now Jesus is coming to Peter after his resurrection, and he's coming to Peter, and he's asking him this first initial question, do you love me more than these? In other words, Peter, you've had some time to think about this. You made a proud boast in the upper room, claiming to love me more than everyone else. What do you say now, Peter? Ouch. I mean, uh, very clearly that's the interpretation of this. Doesn't that probe the heart? I mean, doesn't that probe right in to the heart? And notice how Peter responds. You know that I love you, Lord. He responds by pointing to the omniscience of Jesus. In other words, he responds by pointing to the fact that he knows Jesus to be God. And as God, Jesus knows every thought of every human being, doesn't he? And that's also a theme that's been running through John's gospel. We encountered it all the way back in John chapter 2, didn't we? You know, people were claiming to believe in Jesus, but he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. All the way back in John 2. That's why, you know, last week when I was saying, let's just be an open book before the Lord, because guess what? We already are an open book before the Lord. We might as well come clean because there is no hiding. There's nothing that we can hide from his omniscient eye. Nothing. Do you love me more than these, Simon? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 16, a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So here, Peter, uh, Jesus, uh, Peter has denied Jesus three times, and Jesus is calling for Peter's uh, confirmation three times or his affirmation of his love three times. And you'll notice that in each one of these cases, Jesus gives Peter a charge. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 15, Jesus says, feed my lambs. He does this a second time in verse 16, and Jesus responds by saying, tend my sheep. He does it a third time in verse 17, and responds by saying, feed my sheep. Now, what is Jesus getting on about here? Jesus is connecting this restoration of Peter with service, isn't he? You see the connection between restoration and service. Restoration and service. He's giving him a charge. What is this charge? The, sh the charge is shepherding. Now, a charge has already been given to the disciples. If you look back with me to chapter 20 and you look at verse 21, and in that context, Jesus is appearing to the disciples as a group for the first time. It's Resurrection Sunday. And Jesus says in verse 21, even or as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So there's a charge. And what does this charge look like? Well, it's going to be patterned after the way Jesus, you know, it's going to be patterned after Jesus' ministry. And in verse 23, Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Somewhat of a cryptic sentence until we get on to what it means. It's a sentence that's been twisted and corrupted, and entire denominations have, have really staged their, their entire church life after the corruptions of this verse. 
What it does not mean is that forgiveness of sins is being given to the discretion of men. It does not mean that. Some will say, well, wait a second. It says if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. No. Let's think about what was primary in Jesus' ministry. It was preaching, wasn't it? And what did he preach? The arrival of the kingdom of God in the gospel. Now, what happens when you preach the gospel? Well, two things happen. One is some people receive the gospel, don't they? Some people receive the gospel. And upon receiving the gospel and upon receiving Christ Jesus, what happens? Forgiveness is given to you. Now, others, many others, unfortunately, lots of others reject the gospel. And what happens when that takes place? Forgiveness is withheld. And what Jesus is given here in verse 23 is an ipso facto, if you will, of this verse. In other words, it's a consequence of this verse. As a consequence of preaching the gospel, some will embrace Jesus, others will reject him. So as a consequence of preaching the gospel, some are going to receive forgiveness, others it will be withheld. Does that make sense? So evangelism is going to be something that the disciples are going to be doing. And we know from other parts of the New Testament, many other parts of the New Testament, that this uh, work is going to be given to every generation to do, right? That's what we do, right? Now, when we come to uh, chapter 21, and we're looking at verses 15 and following, namely to Peter's restoration, we find that as Peter is being brought in, Peter is also being brought into service. And the service that's given to Peter is shepherding the flock, shepherding the church, if you will. And if you keep your place in John 21 and you return to the passage we read earlier, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. There, Peter says in verse 1, that I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So here is one elder speaking to other elders. Okay, Peter is an elder. We don't often think of Peter as an elder. We think of Peter as an apostle, but he's also an elder. And he's speaking to other elders he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He is a partaker in the glory that is, being, that is going to be revealed. Verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Now, I read further on because as I, this week, I never, I never noticed this until this week, but this week as I was preparing for this message and, and looking at this, you know, uh, developing this idea where Jesus is charging Peter to uh, shepherd the flock, and it's not a charge that's simply given to Peter, but it's a charge that's given to elders all down through the church age, comparing John 20 and 21, if you will, or even John 13 through 21 with 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 8, it seems to me that Peter may have had these events in his mind when he penned these words. Because it's all there, isn't it? Shepherd the flock. Feed my sheep, Peter. I'm an elder. As an elder or fellow elder among other elders, please shepherd, shepherd the sheep. Peter could have easily said, Feed the lambs, couldn't he? Tend my, tend my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, whatever, whatever words you want to use. Our translations will vary a little bit, but it's involved shepherding. But you'll notice that humility is in there too, isn't it? Clothe yourselves with humility, if you will, in verse 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter was humbled through this, wasn't he? Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Humble yourselves, verse 6, therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. I don't know. This is conjecture on my part, but I have a sneaking suspicion Peter might have been reviewing those events from the upper room to this point of restoration by the Sea of Galilee as he was panning these words. I don't know this, but I think it. It's just an opinion you can take or leave if you want. But the point is, back to John 21, this work is given to elders of every generation. Now, some of them might be sitting there thinking, I can take a deep sigh of relief because Rick's going to finish talking about eldership, and I'm not an elder, so I have nothing to worry about this morning. Within the context of this are the words, follow me. And all of us are called to follow Jesus, aren't we? See, that's why I have parsed this this way. And I want to look at this under four different angles, if you will. And the first angle, I want to look at this through the lenses of evangelism. You know, I'm thinking about this all the time. I'm always thinking about evangelism, I'm always thinking about how to be more effective in evangelism. You know, we pray, Lord, reach these souls. We pray, Lord, reach these people, reach those people. How does the Lord do that? He does that through the administration of his church. We have to be, we can't just sit in a tower somewhere and pray for this. We have to be boots on the ground making it happen. And, uh, of course, God does the work, but he, we are the tools that he uses and one of the things, and I think it was last week that I'd mentioned, that one of the things, especially as I see a group of people moving closer and closer to Jesus, and I know some of you in your own personal evangelism are saying to me, you're seeing the same. And as we're seeing people move closer and closer to Jesus, there was once upon a time a day where when a person made a profession of faith, then they easily connected the dots to getting baptized and becoming part of a local congregation. But one of the things that we see today, and there's a number of reasons for it, is people are not connecting those dots. 
In fact, what we find is being part of a local congregation isn't even on the radar. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say about that. Probably there's two that I would like to mention. One I'm just going to mention in passing. The second I want to develop a little bit was that one is a very anti-institutional age. It's very anti-institutional age. That church is an institution. I'm going to stay away from it. But secondly, I think it's the way we've gone about evangelism, especially in the evangelical realm for so many years, that discipleship doesn't come up. I mean, let's think about it for a moment. How do we typically go, even in my pastoral prayer? What, what did I say? You know, we had a prayer request, you know, the, the violence that's going on. We're praying that the violent will uh, receive the gospel. Okay, well, well, what do we think about when we hear that? We think, well, these folks need to hear the bad news of the gospel, namely that we're going to be judged for every thought, word, and deed, everything that we've done in this life. We need to hear the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has come, died on the cross for our sins, and take this away. Okay, 100%. Spot on. Needs to, needs to be preached. But notice that we stop. Notice how it stops right there. And I think as a result of that, what we have is lots of people who are carrying Jesus in their hearts, if you will, but just going about solo through this world. Or worse yet, in, in, in other uh, unfortunate scenarios, people are carrying Jesus around as if he has fire insurance while they continue to march to the beat of the world. It's popular. You, you see that all day long, don't you? Perhaps we should go about this a different way. I'm going to suggest that perhaps we should start using the words, follow me. I've been thinking about this for a while, and you see the words, follow me, all the time. Jesus says, follow me. Okay, can we get to the bad news from follow me? Absolutely we can. Jesus, it would be a strange thing for Jesus to say to us, follow me, if we're already following him. He says, follow me, because we're following something else. What is that something else? It's what Paul calls the course of this world in Ephesians chapter 2, isn't it? Following after the course of this world. That's how we come out of the box. Following after the course of this world. And I think this is going to give us a broader definition, a broader working understanding of what repentance is. It's a matter of turning from the course of this world, repenting of our sins for sure, and repenting our sins on the way as we follow behind Jesus. But it is an about face in the military. An about face, you go like this, and then you turn right around, right? It's an about face. The Lord says uh, in Isaiah, Isaiah 45, verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I'm God and there's no other. Again, it's a strange thing for the Lord to say, turn to me and be saved, unless our backs are to him. Well, of course our backs are to him when we're following after the pattern of this world. So we get to the bad news plenty enough with the words, follow me, but we're also presenting a picture of what salvation looks like. We're presenting a picture of what salvation looks like in this fallen world. What does it look like? It looks like following behind Jesus. 
He is now the new moving principle in our lives upon which we get our instructions, upon which we align our hearts, upon which we march after. He is the drum upon which we march. It is beat in which we march. Does that make sense? We follow after him. I think this lines up with the Great Commission. Go. Go throughout the world. Preach the gospel, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. I think the words follow me. And then when people, as people hear this follow me, they have a good idea. Okay, what does following me going to involve? It's all in our text here. As Peter is being restored, Peter is given the charge to shepherd the flock. That's his particular calling, isn't it? That's how Peter is being called. Now, some will say, you know, very few men are actually called to be elders. Well, what, what role do I have in that? We're all called to support the cause, aren't we? We each have been wonderfully gifted to support the cause. My point is here is that it's something that I, I mentioned to you years ago, something that I read when I was still way back doing my undergrad work at Geneva College. And I think, if I remember right, it was a photocopy of a chapter of one of Edmund Clowney's books. And I remember that sentence. He said, the call to Christ is the call to service. Man, that just locked in my mind. The first time I read that, I had never forgotten it. I'm like, that is so true and so profound. And it shouldn't have been so. It's not something that the fact that it was so profound to me really speaks a lot to the absence of it, doesn't it? Because we usually don't react that way. You know, if I said Jesus is the son of God, I mean, we should say, wow, that's so profound. It is profound. But we hear it all the time, don't we? But the call to Christ to service, I think, is a jarring statement. Now, that was more than 20 years ago I read that. I'd suggest it's even a more jarring statement now. The call to Christ is the call to service. What does it look like to follow after Jesus? Well, we're going to serve him. We're going to serve him as servants, right? Somehow. Each of us are called to do this. So the second thing that I would say about following me, first of all, we have implications of following me in evangelism. We have uh, implications of following me to service. It's a call to service. How do we serve? We serve in the local church. I think it paints a picture. Now, uh, thirdly, we find self-denial in here. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, that's John 21, verse 18. Jesus says to to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Very crypt, pretty cryptic statement. How do we make sense of it? Context, context, context. Look at verse 9 in the parentheses. This Jesus said to show, but what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And the phrase, you will stretch out your hands, as D.A. Carson points out, certainly means crucifixion. You will stretch out your hands on the crossbeam. This immediately should bring our minds, if we're familiar with the Gospels, it should bring our minds to a, a statement that Jesus often made. If you want to follow after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and come and follow me, right? Anyone who would be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, what does that mean? If you're so inclined, you can keep your place in John 21 and turn to Mark chapter 8 if you want. You don't have to. 
But it might be helpful if you do. It's not, I'm not going to stay there very long, but I'm, I'm choosing this text because in our Bible study at the park on last Monday, these were verses we were looking at. Verse 34, Mark 8, verse 34. Jesus calls a crowd to himself. Peter has just made his great confession. Peter speaking on behalf of himself and the apostles that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus says in verse 31 that he's to be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes and killed, and after three days rise again. And Peter rebukes him. And Jesus calls the crowd in verse 34 and says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Now, there's something really interesting about the word that's used, that's translated deny. It's a word, and if I remember correctly, don't hold me to it, but if I remember correctly, it's unanimously. If it's not unanimously, it's nearly unanimously used for denying, not denying pizza, not denying ourselves pizza, but denying a person. It's the word that's used for Peter denying Jesus. Same word. But in verse 34, Jesus is saying that we are to deny ourselves. What does that mean? Well, I think Peter fleshes it out really well in the courtyard of the high priest when a servant girl comes to him and says, you're, all, you're from Galilee. You're with that Galilean, aren't you? You're one of Jesus' disciples, aren't you? No, not me. I never met him. Now, there's denying going on, but the, deni the denying that's taking place is the denial of Jesus. Now, why is the denial of Jesus taking place? Because there's an embracement of self. People talk about carrying their cross all day long, and generally speaking, they use this out of context. I find very few people that understand this passage. I don't mean any disrespect, but I find very few that understand this passage. And it takes a little while to understand this passage. I wrestled with it a long time myself. I'm not throwing rocks at anyone. It takes a while to get this stuff, doesn't it? So what does it mean to carry our cross? You know, I'm hurt in a football accident, and now I have a limp, and you'll hear people say, this is the cross I'm to bear. No, that's not what this is talking about. Now, if you're in the process of being persecuted, and someone says, deny Jesus, or I'm going to shoot you, for example, and you refuse to deny Jesus, and you get shot, and now you have some kind of impediment for the rest of your life. Well, yes, that is a cross that you're bearing. Does that make sense? Because we have to deny something here, don't we, when we're in those positions. When we go to the workplace tomorrow, we're going to deny something. When we're put to the task, we're either going to deny Jesus or we're going to deny ourselves. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, you see, this involves following Jesus. We're coming back to that again, aren't we? There's a cost to following Jesus in this fallen world. There's a cost to it. 
don't know what that cost. We'll get to that in a moment, what that cost might be. But in the meantime, we have to deny something, don't we? And what Jesus is saying, listen, if it's just, just the nature of things here. It's just the nature of things. If you're going to come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. What is your cross then? The cross is whatever God wills for our lives. The cross is whatever God's calling us all out in different contexts, and it's going to be different things for each one of us, which is what we get to next. John is, if you go back to John's gospel, John 21, notice what happens next. In verse 20, John 21, verse 20, Peter turns around and sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper, and it said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? In an earlier message, we concluded that's John, the apostle John. We won't go into all that now. But in verse 21, when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, what about him? What about him? Imagine this being loaded on you. Imagine being told that you are going to die by crucifixion. Peter carried this for probably 30 years. Every day he knew that one of these days he was going to die by crucifixion. And Peter is simply asking, what about John? What about John? Look at Jesus' response in verse 22. If, if, if it's my will and he remain until I come, what is that to you? A lot of times we see the word come and we lock into eschatology and we start thinking, oh, uh, the Perugia, we start thinking about Jesus' return, and, and then we, we miss the whole thing. This verse is not giving us an earmarker in regards to when Jesus is going to return. It's a hypothetical Jesus is saying, listen, if it was my will that John never dies, what is that to you? You have your assignment. Notice verse 23. The saying spread, they misunderstood. The saying spread abroad among the brothers that John was not to die. And there was some really fanciful interpretations of this verse throughout church history. I mean, one, one that I recall is that John never died. He slept, and when he was buried, the ground above where he was buried would go up and down as he breathed. I know it's bizarre, but people believe that stuff. They're misunderstanding. They're misunderstanding this. It's a hypothetical. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this, this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? In other words, it's a hypothetical. It's not giving us an earmarker on the timing of Jesus' return. It's like, Peter, you got your assignment. John is going to get his. Both of you are going to carry a cross, but your crosses are going to be different. Peter will be crucified. John will be exiled on the island of Patmos. And, and that applies to all of us. We're... We're all in different contexts. As we scatter from here, we all go scatter to different places, don't we? And therefore, I mean, persecution has got many things that, uh, that are the same, that are the same amongst, there's some basic components of persecution that's the same for us all. But the details is going, probably the details are going to be quite different for each one of us. 
But one thing we can surmise from this for sure is that it's costly. And you see, I think follow me covers that too. That's why I think we should be, you know, you run around in our culture today and you say, hey, are you saved? People are going to go, we're saved for what? Saved from your sins. What's the big deal? What's the big deal about my sins? And I know many people are going to the law and they're saying, well, you know, you've broken this one, you've broken this one, you've broken this one. <laughs> people say, who cares? It's not that big of a deal. God is love. Okay. Well, why don't you follow Jesus then? Are you following Jesus? What's that? I think going forward, I really believe going forward, this is one of the things we need to do to reach people for the gospel. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's wonderful. And there's only, you know, even, even Led Zeppelin got it right on this one. There are two paths you can go by. You know, you're either following after the course. Ask yourself, are you following everybody else? Are you following the herd? Are you following the Jewish carpenter? It's an opinion that I'm offering. It's definitely something I'm going to be trying. So we have... Follow me in evangelism. We have follow me a call to service. We have follow me self-denial. And we have follow me faithfulness to our assignment. Our assignments are going to be different. And that's probably a good place to leave it this morning. What do you think? Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, these two wonderful and beautiful words, they're such a blessing to hear you say to us, to hear the Holy One of Israel, the Sovereign One, Creator of the universe, the one who is righteous and pure, the one before angels bow their faces and cry, holy, holy, holy. For you to say to the likes of us, follow me, is a wonderful thing, Lord. It is an un it's almost unimaginable. But Father, you, you have said it and you've given us provision so that we can. You have come in the person of Jesus Christ to take sin away so that we could be united to you by faith and that we would be empowered to be able to follow you. Well, Father, the question we ask ourselves this morning is, are we following you or are we still just chasing after the value system of this world? Oh, Father, do we value what the world values or do we value what you value? Father, I think this opens up a lot of things. I think this opens up a lot of things, Father, how liberating. And we find as we begin to study that Jesus was so fond of saying, follow me in so many words. Oh, Lord, may we all be found following you and following you afresh this day for your glory, not for ours, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.